0: Good morning, Conrad. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to my holiday next week.
0: Yes, I bet. Well, we haven't spoken for a while, Conrad. Um, I was doing some research ahead of this interview, and I noticed on Twitter you described yourself as a reformed banker now reforming banking, and I thought that would be a great place to start. So walk us through that, and specifically, where did you start
1: yeah, well, I think the first point is when I started. So I was quite unusual and I didn't get my first permanent job until I was about 27. And I know if I was German or something, that would be because I was doing endless PhDs or something worthy. But actually, because um, <laughs> I was English and middle class, it meant I was traveling around the world. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so I had long hair, long hair and an unimpressive beard for a few years. Um, I, I then got my first permanent job around age 27 um, and I actually took a job in investment banking. So that was in the run-up to the first dot-com crash. Um, so this was the dot-com crash, um, uh, where at the other end of that we had the likes of Amazon and eBay and PayPal. But believe you me, there were a lot of a lot of big companies going into it, and very few came out the other side. But I joined investment banking. I worked at UBS um, uh, and was doing a job, actually uh, an accounting job. I qualified as an accountant, which I hated, um, I, I was um, wasn't great at it, uh, um, and. And then I so, sort of probably the most important early career move was I moved across to Barclays Bank, where I moved to their corporate strategy team. Uh, and actually, funnily enough, I actually was working briefly with our current CEO of the bank I work at now. So um, uh, but I worked at corporate strategy at Barclays, which was super interesting. You know, that was, you know, which countries to go into next, which uh, which companies do we buy? That sort of thing. Um, and that was kind of the thing that really um, got me, uh, I think, uh, my first sort of taste of what a really interesting, exciting job looks like. Uh, and then I was, in bar- uh, I was in banking for a few years after that, and then the global financial crisis hit, hence the uh, <laughs> reformed banker, because banking uh, and working in banking went from being a respectable profession to being very unrespectable, if that's the words, um, post the global financial crisis. Uh, and actually, it was around that time that I decided to move on from banking and actually go into and found my own fintech business. So, hence uh, the joke on Twitter. Um, so, I founded a business called F- uh, Funding Options. Um, which is it's Europe's leading intermediary aggregator for SME lending. So um, it's often confused with a peer-to-peer lender, which was a, a very popular thing when I founded Funding Options. But actually Funding Options is not a lender, it's an intermediary. Think you know money supermarket for business lending. So I founded that business around 2012 and I scaled it up um, uh, through multiple funding rounds, et cetera. And I stood down as CEO about 18 months ago.
0: Fantastic. I think many people will know you from your time at Funding Options, a business that you founded, as you say, back in 2012. It's now one of the fastest growing companies in in Europe, which is fantastic. Putting your startup founder hat on for a moment, can you remember what the biggest challenges were in, let's say, the first five years of launching that business and what it was like disrupting the market?
1: Yeah, so I think... Many founders these days, probably um, founding a business is one of the first things they do in their career. And I think the biggest challenge for them is, is knowing nothing yeah, mm. um, about how business works. I think I was probably different in that I'd spent a fairly successful career in large organizations. And actually the challenge I had was I kind of knew too much um, because um, the tools and skills that you learn in large companies, which I kind of would, um, I, w- I would use the analogy of you're learning to steer a super tanker. This thing with enormous momentum, enormous power and making tweaks to its direction to incrementally improve the business, improve the uh, performance of the business. Well, actually, that's a fundamentally different challenge to starting a startup, Mm -hmm. um, uh, which is extraordinarily hard to do, um, I found out. And effectively, you kind of start with nothing. You know, a big bank, for example, has hundreds of years of history, has presence around the country, tens of millions of clients, it has hundreds of years of brand recognition. A startup has none of those things, um, uh, and you're kind of starting from nothing. My greatest challenge was that I was not agile enough. So, um, uh, I'm, you know, the, the uh, lean startup approach, as they call it, of building a minimum viable product, get in front of customers really quickly. I didn't do that because that's not the world I've learned. Uh, and I think if I'd known what I know now, I probably would have, you know, I, I would have got gone three times as fast and spent three times as little money. And so I think the greatest challenge for me was actually unlearning what I'd learned in large organisations.
0: That's really interesting. And recently you've been, invi- you've been involved sorry, in, in advising companies such as iWalker, Trade Ledger, Coconut, the list goes on. What, what would you say these companies have in common? And what do you see is the, the next big shiny thing in tech at the moment?
1: Yeah, so I, I had a really happy year um not doing huge amounts um after i stepped down from funny options i think the first few months i was frankly recovering my sanity um, but uh, after that um uh, i began to um, speak to some of the founders that i would kind of got to know along the way um, uh, and i've got to know some amazing founders fintech founders along the way you know there's there's kind of a community of us um uh, that we're kind of, of a similar generation um so i'd say the defining characteristic for the three companies you mentioned is that i knew the founders uh, and become friendly with the founders. The reasons I kind of went to help them with various stuff differed, uh, but fundamentally they're all people I like and respect and businesses I have huge admiration for. Um, so, so just briefly in turn, I mean, iWaka is undoubtedly the preeminence of data-driven SME lender in Europe. Mm-hmm. So there are businesses of su- su- similar success and scale, I think, in the US, but um, you know, iWaka really stands out as having really pioneered using data to lend to SMEs. Um, uh, um, so that that that's uh, and it's a company that actually funding options grew up with. We were quite integral to each other's successes. So funding options actually originated quite a lot of Iwalkers business, certainly in the early years. So we kind of had a symbiotic uh, relationship growing up together. Trade Ledger is an amazing company. Um, it's a company that. Um, doesn't, it, it doesn't really get a huge amount of attention because it's an enterprise um, B2B. So in other words, it's selling um, not directly to consumers or SMEs, it's selling to large organizations. It has an amazing track record. Recently raised a significant amount of money from West Coast investors, you know, kind of investors that much more well-known fintech companies in Europe would die for. Um, so I, I remain a board advisor at Trade Ledger. I think it's an amazing company. I, I really love that role. I love the company as well. And finally, Coconut Coconut is the only company I've ever actually angel invested in. So uh, you can tell how I feel about that. Coconut is using open banking to deliver a new type of um, uh, um, banking service for micro businesses. Uh, And and I think they're doing an amazing job and they've got some amazing traction at the moment.
0: Fantastic. And then the next big shiny thing, what would you say? Any uh, trends on your radar?
1: Yeah, well, I I think we're moving into sort of a new phase of fintech. And um, what I mean by that is we've kind of had multiple attempts to build direct-to-customer or direct-to-SME um, businesses. Um, the majority of those have failed or will fail because in the end, um, uh, there's a kind of tendency to end up spending a lot of money attracting customers that the big players actually don't want in the first place. So There's kind of an adverse selection problem of spending huge amounts of money acquiring customers that, frankly, they would give you <laughs> if they could. Um, there are notable exceptions. You know, there's the likes of Revolut, transfer-wise, recently rebranded-wise, that have really built serious companies. Uh, But I would say that they're the minority. What I think we're in now is kind of the second phase of fintech, or arguably the third phase of fintech, where the great companies are the ones building the plumbing, the underlying infrastructure for the financial revolution. Uh, And what I mean by that is that, in the end, the most valuable customers are still with the traditional large financial institutions. And potentially the opportunity lies in actually enabling those financial institutions to get better at what they do. Um, so, you know, they kind of the, I guess, the standout example of that is Plaid in the US, uh, which is kind of a their equivalent of open banking. Uh, an extraordinarily high number of U.S. consumers have used Plaid in some shape or form. They probably don't know it's Plaid, but through various uh, um, fintech services and banking services, they've used this underlying infrastructure. I think those kind of companies, um, Stripe is another one in payments. I think we're in kind of in the, it, 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 it's kind of those companies that are going to be really, really big and really sustainable.
0: Brilliant. Now, you famously emailed Anne Bowden. Uh, You were saying you were interested in Starling's proposition for SME lending, and you lended yourself a role there as a result, which I absolutely love. Um, Why why do you believe that the small business lending market has been so traditionally underserved?
1: Um, Well, firstly, small business means many things, okay? Um, uh, And I would say that the micro business market so there's kind of like um, very, very um, uh, large numbers of small businesses that are almost people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a, uh, if you're a plumber and that, that owns a ladder uh, and you do jobs uh, and you have maybe have a separate account for your business money, but fundamentally your personal and business finances are really deeply intertwined. And you're very often putting money into your business and taking it out. So they're kind of interchangeable. I think that area of the market is reasonably well served with what I would call informal lending.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What I mean by that is people just use their personal credit cards. Yeah. Um, so if they applied for a business credit card, they would get a no, but they just use personal credit cards. So they've got a five grand limit. So I think that is not necessarily underserved. I think where the underserved area of the market is more established SMEs. Now, the reasons for that are, I think, fundamentally, that's the big incumbent banks the big high street banks of which we have four or five here in the uk they find that it sits really awkwardly for them so um, their core revenue generation is either consumers the 30 million consumers in the uk uh, or the small number of very large corporates the Vodafone's of this world now for the micro business segment they can just about get away with serving them by, by frankly hacking on a few features onto their consumer bank accounts but as the businesses get a bit larger and a bit more complicated, where they have multiple employees, payment authorization, payment runs, then hacking features onto a consumer bank account just doesn't cut it. The, the other option they have is to try and simplify their corporate banking platforms, the Vodafone-type platforms. And guess what? That doesn't work either. So the SME segment, the established SME segment, which is probably about half a million, they kind of sit really awkwardly in between, uh, and they are unequivocally underserved by the major banks. Um, and one interesting data point on this is that for some reason when the last bank branch closes in a town? So, think about it in these terms: a town of 5,000 people, one bank shuts down a branch, the next bank, the final bank gives up on that town and walks away, shuts down the branch. Lending to SMEs in that postcode goes into decline. So, for some reason, although in reality the banks aren't making their lending decisions in branches anymore, you know, Captain Mannering is long gone, right? for some reason that physical presence seems to matter to SME lending and SME communities. So um, uh, so we we are losing something in that established SME segment. So those kind of SMEs at the backbone of the local economy and actually represent about a quarter of the UK economy, are very underserved in lending by the by the major banks.
0: I listened to one of your interviews. I think it was June last year. I found it really interesting because you described SME lending as an oligopoly, which I did have to Google, by the way, but I thought it was a great way of summarising exactly what you just mentioned there. It's the, uh, the players dominating the market, but they don't necessarily want to be there, I think you mentioned. So tell us more yeah, about... Yeah, this, this is the I'm funny thing. The right? so,
1: so for those that don't didn't waste their life on an economics A-level like me, so an oligopoly is when a small number of companies dominate the market. Generally speaking, an oligopoly is how large companies, a small number of large companies dominate in the worst possible way. Um, I can't think of any other market where the oligopolists, uh, as they're called, don't want their oligopoly. But SME lending is probably one of them. So the major banks here in the UK, and this will also be true in Australia and Canada, this isn't just us. Um, They account for, depending on how you define it, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of lending to SMEs. And they would rather that those SMEs are not quite so dependent on them. So generally, you know, economic theory would say that an oligopoly tries to protect its oligopoly uh, and keep competitors out. Well, guess what? I'm not sure this is one. That, that I think this is the unique one where they would actually quite welcome some healthy competition. So that's what I meant by, it. you know, statistically, this is what econ- economists would think of as an oligopoly, which is a small number of dominant players.
0: How do you think we change the tide on that? Is that even possible?
1: Well, I think we were making amazing progress before COVID. Um, So before COVID, there was a real growth in alternative lenders in what are called challenger banks. And I don't necessarily mean the digital app banks. I mean, there's some challengers that would be less well known because they don't aim for consumers. So they don't really spend much money on us, people like us trying to get to know them. Um, But COVID has really, um, I think, had a really quite fundamental impact uh, on the SME lending market. And we haven't seen that yet. And the reason is because the government has flooded the market with guarantee schemes, mostly what's called the bounce-back loan scheme, um, where over a million businesses have been given these very, very um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, unencumbered loans. And essentially, that's I would say it's not papered over cracks, it's papered over chasms. In reality, what tends to happen when there's a downturn is that lenders that are not banks, their sources of funding dry up, so they can't lend because they haven't got any money to lend. Uh, and, banks, uh, and then banks will tend to be focused internally on actually working out issues that they have on their existing lending. We haven't really seen that yet, but I think that's because of the literally unprecedented levels of government intervention. Um, and at some point, of course, that government intervention is gonna die down. And I think we will be seeing, I, I really don't know what the landscape looks like on the other side. Uh, But I do worry about whether it will be as competitive and vibrant as it was pre-COVID.
0: Now, you once said that the UK and specifically London was the fintech capital of Europe. And obviously, with all the changes that the last 12 months has brought us, working from home quite clearly might be here to stay. Do you see London retaining its edge as the fintech capital of Europe?
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, And actually, the more conventional way I used to get asked that was in the context of Brexit. Um, I think financial markets, they, they are very, very scale-based. So you've got a number of factors there. Firstly, the deep, deep level of expertise that's required in certain areas of financial services, where you know the number of people that understand particular types of investment banking product, for example, are probably hundreds globally. So you, you have a real concentration point there, which is that wherever the talent is, is where the business takes place, regardless of regulation or anything like that. And then you've also got the point of liquidity as well. And what that means is effectively when you're exchanging things, you want to go to a deep pool of people, who buyers and sellers, uh, to get the best pricing and to be able to actually get stuff out the door. Mm. A very good example there is the FX market financial, uh, um, financial currency exchange, where London absolutely dominates that market. And the reason is really simple, um, that you want to go to that deep pool of liquidity because um, uh, you want to be where everyone is buying and selling. So I think those two drivers will keep London's strengths as a financial centre. I think London's strengths as a financial centre are the reason that we are so strong in fintech. So uh, I don't think that we, certainly in European terms, I don't think that's going to majorly change anytime soon. Uh, I would say, though, that I I went on a business trip to China um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and I was just kind of staggered about how advanced their fintech industry is. And what I mean is that it's not about the conferences the money 2020 conferences and they're getting up on stage and wearing cool t-shirts everybody is using fintech in china yeah um so I, I kind of wonder whether we've kind of talked ourselves into a bit of a bubble here in london and thinking that you know we i do think we dominate in europe um, but whether that matters as much as i thought it used to matter i'm not sure
0: Now, towards the end of last year, you announced as one of the three senior hires joining Alica. Uh, And we can see your hoodie today, Conrad, so I can tell that you've joined. Um, Tell us about Alica's proposition. What excites you about the potential there?
1: Yeah, so Alica is a new bank and we're aimed at the established SME segment. So we're quite distinct from somebody like uh, Tide, who's focused on the micro business segment. We're focused on established SMEs. Uh, and really, what we're about is what I talked about earlier, which is this um, relentless retrenchment by the major banks from serving established SMEs. Um, and it's, it's really an under, under, underestimated segment, right? So, you know, our segment represents about a quarter of the UK economy. That's far, far bigger than the micro business segment. So, although there's only half a million businesses in our segment, collectively they're much bigger than the 5 million micro businesses. So, so we're out there to really try and rebuild something that's been lost, which is relationship banking for SMEs because established SMEs do actually need, and indeed they say very clearly that they want a relationship bank. What that means is they can't do their banking needs on an app. They can't do everything remotely. They actually need experts to understand their business. So really, if you want to understand, you know, if you go back 10 years, uh, a business with 25 employees, probably would have had a really high-quality relationship manager in their local bank branch with one of the big five banks. Now they probably actually have an anonymous call centre. So now they go through the horrible pain that we all go through, which is being bounced from call call centre agent to call centre agent trying to fix a problem. What we're doing is bringing back that sort of expert relationship banking um, um, but without the branches, because we think with modern technology, you know, with iPads, maybe with e-scooters even, you know, we can actually go out and do banking on the move with our clients. Uh, and I've actually got the really exciting task of actually building out that relationship management proposition. So, Alec, we've had a, a really successful first year of trading um, focused on our other channel of brokers, uh, where we've been growing really quickly. And actually, we were voted by brokers the best um, commercial mortgage provider in the market which has never happened in, 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 in the first year of any uh, lender in, in the UK. So we've had a fantastic first year through our broker channel. Uh, and now we're also expanding our wings into relationship management. So, uh, and, and that's one of the things that I'm responsible for.
0: Fantastic. Sounds very exciting. I guess one of my final questions would be, we, we do hear a lot about the balance between the human touch, the relationship side of banking, but also all of the um transformation towards going digital do you think that will always be an oxymoron or do you think we can achieve the right balance there
1: yeah i think it really depends on the target segment so um, i think we are in a relentless move towards probably purely digital for um consumer banking um i mean certainly i've uh, i've not found a reason to even think about going into a branch recently um for uh, cause of covid um so and, and the analogy i always give here is that you know we none of us woke up and said i'm never going to a bank branch again right what actually just happened was that you know we read in the newspaper times the telegraph whatever that people haven't you know stopped going to bank branches we sit there thinking god i haven't been to a bank branch all year yeah so we just stopped finding reasons to go there um and i personally think that consumer banking is kind of relentlessly on a move towards digital uh and i'm a great believer in what they call embedded finance so that we'll see financial services getting embedded in the day-to-day things we we use in our lives. I think that there will remain a significant amount of relationship banking, um, certainly for the next decade, um, uh, in in more complex areas of banking, which might be private banking for wealthy individuals. It might be um, SME banking, focused on larger SMEs, and, of course, corporate banking and governments. So I think think it really depends on the segment, but I think we're getting closer and closer to the answer in terms of the balance of digital and human.
0: Final question. So predictions for what do you think will be driving the technology standard for the next one to three years? If you could share your thoughts on that, Conrad, I'd be really interested.
1: Well, something that passed fairly unnoticed, I think, is that the FCA did, I think it was the FCA, one one of the major regulators did an analysis of projects in banking, successful projects in banking. Uh, And I believe they actually concluded that banks that used cloud and agile methodologies. So, in other words, the stuff that banks have managed to convince themselves and the regulators against somehow um, uh, have actually been uh, actually run more successful projects. So, I think we are. I think that kind of is the watershed moment from which the big banks will finally stop having excuses to do anything. I, I was on a really interesting round, uh, round table with some um, representatives of major banks the other day. One of the really interesting insights is that they clearly thought that often the the reason that they couldn't transform a legacy infrastructure, it's too difficult, was actually an ex- internal excuse not to do anything. And the reason they were saying that is because COVID had demonstrated that they need to move quickly. They can move very quickly indeed. You know, When they spun up government lending schemes, for example, they did it in days. Right? Um, you know, if COVID hadn't happened and they had to do that kind of project, they would have convinced themselves it was a three-year project so yeah. so i think uh, i think we're seeing a confluence of factors that would suggest that the big banks are probably going to learn how to do stuff more quickly um so i think i think that's pr- i think it's actually going to be the cultural change of the biggest change you know new technologies come and go um uh, and the age of really transformative technologies i suspect in financial services is kind of it's kind of gone i think what's actually going to happen is the big incumbents are going to finally learn what it takes to be agile
0: Conrad Ford, thank you very much for joining me today. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I'll catch up with you later.
1: Brilliant. Nice to speak.
0: All the best.